when you said you knew uh what's his name charles dance mm-hmm. from game of thrones well and alien three okay where you know where i recognized him from was the ali g movie ali g <laughs> in the house oh my god i'm like <laughs> I'm like, hey, it's the Deputy Prime Minister from Hallie G. <laughs> Welcome to Screens of the Stone Age, the podcast where scientists review movies about prehistoric people. My name is Josh Lindell. I'm a grad student studying Neanderthal teeth, and I'm here with... I'm Dr. Kimberly Plomp. I am a bioarchaeologist. I study the human skeleton, health and disease, and human evolution. And I'm Dr. Ross Barnett, a specialist in ancient DNA and... Pleistocene megafauna. And today we are reviewing a short film called Chronoperambulator. This is by far the shortest film that we've ever covered. It's only, it's less than 11 minutes. Uh, but mm-hmm. for some reason, I decided we we're going to do a full episode on this one. It might end up being one of our shortest episodes as well, but uh, I think we've got a few things we could talk about in this one. But uh, before we get into it, just to pad the runtime of our episode a little bit, I think I would like to do the thing that we always forget to do, which is to thank our audience and ask them to share our podcast and uh, like us and give us reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and stuff like that. Because if you're the type of listener who clicked on a podcast episode titled Chronoperambulator, you are a true fan of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks for listening and tell your friends about us. (laughs) Anyway, who wants to summarize this uh, <laughs> short film? I don't know. Who did the last one? Was it me? I think you, it was you, yeah. I really enjoyed it. So it starts out, like the start is very old-timey, like a black and white, um, one of those movies that does it by like shots, right? Like at the very beginning of motion pictures. Like a silent film? Yeah. So I wasn't quite sure where it was going with that. And this man in in the beginning, he's making like this machine that then blows up and then someone runs away with an arm. So it seems like <laughs> someone's blown up and then someone's stolen the uh, the arm. I don't know. It was strange. And then I was like, Josh, he did it again. right? <laughs> <laughs> and then, but then it opens up to a movie. And um, so it opens up to a scientist who is very much like the idea of a mad scientist so he's got these weird glasses one with a dark lens one with a with a, just a clear lens and he has a hook for a hand for no apparent reason no because he, he lost, lost his arm, arm in the explosion it was his arm that got blown off oh is that what that is <laughs> oh okay it all comes together mm. right okay so yeah so he lost his arm in the explosion but so this rich guy reads the newspaper and it says that there is this archaeological find and we saw some guy find the archaeological find Oh, doing this so badly. (laughs) We saw a man digging what looked like a grave. I don't know if we're supposed to assume he's an archaeologist, but it looks like he's just digging a grave. And then he finds a human cranium. And then it goes to a shot of a rich man buying a paper. And the paper says like it was an amazing find. And so the reason why the archaeological find is amazing is because it is a Neolithic burial, Neolithic site. So they estimated that it was 6,000 years old, but it was found with a piece of metal, like a piece of like a metal piping. And so it was supposed to then put the site, the idea of the Metal Age way back into the Neolithic, which is the new Stone Age, which would be absolutely crazy. And so excited, like a huge, would revise everything that we thought about the evolution of technology and, and 
um, industries. So then the scientist with the time machine says, well, we could go back in time and actually see what's happening because I've built this time machine. And the rich guy's like, okay, fine. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and then they bring this other guy, this poor guy gets brought just as a witness. And I don't think he wanted to go or anything. They just kind of grabbed it. Oh, Nate, Ross, we have matching nails. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yours are slightly neater than mine. <laughs> we both are black nail polish on, chipped black nail polish. <laughs> um, so three of them go back in time. This, the scientist the rich man and the poor sap who just got pulled in as a witness for some reason. And they go into the time machine and they zap back into the Neolithic at the same time. So it was one of those time machines that stays at the same location, right? So all of a sudden they're in the Neolithic and they're surrounded by a tribe of Neolithic people. And the tribe of Neolithic people kind of circle them and the people start trying to talk to them and they do this the silly thing of like, we mean you no harm with like hand <laughs> gestures that don't mean anything just really loudly and slowly as if that's going to communicate to these people who are not going to speak modern English or um, so then they uh, it becomes apparent pretty quickly that the Neolithic people are not too happy with these what probably to them looks like aliens that have just appeared out of nowhere in this big weird looking machine and so they get brutally killed pretty quickly and then the scene goes into the Neolithic people, like, wearing their clothes, playing with the equipment, like, they've t taken apart the machine, and they're just, like, playing around with everything, and they're kind of being funny, like, mimicking the, trying to mimic, <laughs> making fun of the guys, and, like, it was really funny, and so then the idea is that the piece of metal that they found in the Neolithic site is from the time machine, and so it's, like, it's like the circular argument where they found the time machine because they went back in time and they went back in time because they found a piece of the time machine and it just keeps going and going and going. You can't think that far into it else your mind will melt. <laughs> and then it ends. It was really cute. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked it because, uh, I mean, I like time travel stuff, but, uh, it's so hard to get it right. And this is a yeah. perfect closed loop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, it, the twist wasn't really that original, I guess, but uh, it was fun. It was concise. If it was like a f longer movie, you would have figured it out way too early. But because it was only 11 minutes long, uh, the twist is happening at the same time you realize what the twist is, you know? Yeah. yeah. And then it's just enjoyable with the the people like wearing the clothes and making fun of them. And <laughs> like, it was just, yeah, it was funny. It was I liked it. And some Great actors in it as well. Um, Charles Dance, yeah. Tywin, yeah. Tywin Lannister himself. Yeah, I was like, isn't that that dude? Yeah. Like, what's he doing in <laughs> this? That, isn't that that guy from that thing? Yeah. Uh, and also Bill and, Patterson. And in the background, yeah, and in the background, there was a shot of a woman. I didn't go back to it, but she looked like she was familiar too. She mm. might have, it might have been one of her first roles or something. I don't know who it was. Okay. But. but Bill Patterson's yeah. great as well. He's been in everything, like Doctor Who and uh, Fleabag, he's in. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. He's the voice of the repair shop. If you guys watch that on the iPlayer, um, mm. but yeah, no, he's, it was great, well acted, and yeah, like Josh was saying, it's a nice closed loop uh, story, which are fairly difficult to do, I think, mm -hmm. in a way that's recursive but not illogical. Yeah, it's it's uh, quite hard to do without getting into the kind of grandfather paradox, the idea that you know if you go back in time and do something. That's going to prevent you mm -hmm. from doing it in the future. But this one mm -hmm. worked quite nicely. 
And I don't know about you guys, but I kind of twigged what was going to be the the twist just about uh, when when Teddy Knox, the mad scientist, when he rocks up to the archaeological site with his time machine, I thought, right, here's what's going to happen. The, the, the three bodies that <laughs> yeah. are in the ground and the bit of metal are going to be three guys from now and the, and the bit of time machine. But that was fine. Unfortunately, like, there's only about five minutes left exactly. in the whole thing at that yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. And there are still some good good bits coming up of the them taking the piss out of their the guys they just brutally murdered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that poor guy who just got pulled in as a witness, like he wanted nothing to do with it. He didn't even yeah. approach the people. Like when they all when they both like the rich man and the scientist got out of the of the machine and approached the people to talk to him, the other guy just stayed in the machine and was like, This is not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> I think he was the reporter, wasn't he? So it kind of made oh, sense he? that he should be the one who was selected. Uh, yeah, less sympathy for him now. <laughs> well, anyway, it's a short film, but do we have any uh, scientific inaccuracies or uh, mistakes that we can pick apart? Um, well, first of all, I was impressed that they got the timing of the Neolithic right. So they, they say that these are Neolithic mm-hmm. people older than the pyramids about 6,000 years ago, and that ties in pretty well with, I guess sort of middle neolithic i would say in mm. in britain so it's set in ireland which is interesting mm-hmm. i don't know much but i think the neolithic of ireland's fairly um expansive you've got sites like uh big famous ones whose name are escaping me at the minute um newgrange that's what I'm, yeah newgrange fantastic kind of neolithic um chamber tomb and all sorts of really fasc- fascinating sites there um, and so, yeah, definitely there's Neolithic people in Ireland. Um, they get the time period that they mention right, which not every film we've watched does. Uh, the Neolithic people themselves don't look particularly Neolithic. They don't look particularly dressed for, <laughs> you know, Irish uh, springtime or, or summer or winter or whenever it was supposed to be that they're, no. they turn up. So they're kind of in caveman uh, furs, which we know mm-hmm. by the Neolithic people would have had, you know, fitted, well-made, uh, sewn clothes that that would have, yeah these guys were just the regular like yeah small fur vest and that's right the, and, the yeah. raquel welch one million years bc yeah. school of um sartorial uh design and also the, i think the the weapons they had weren't <laughs> one of them was a neolithic. trident yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but wooden we don't know they might have had wooden tridents yeah. but yeah, they, i guess so yeah <laughs> the the stone points the stone weren't stuff. neolithic no. though no they weren't You'd, what would you expect? Like really well-made, nice, small microlith sort of stuff? Is that what you would expect for kind of Neolithic? I mm. think so. You would have yeah. probably bows and arrows or um, uh, I think for reference, Otzi is around the same mm-hmm. age, uh, mm-hmm. isn't he? So we could yeah. probably imagine, you know, similar style of clothes, similar style of tools. Yeah. Otzi he's a, he's had, a bit later because um, he's metal, isn't he? He's got, um, he's kind of copper age. Yeah, like uh, Chalcolithic, like mm-hmm. uh, late late uh, Neolithic, early Copper Age, I think, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. So he has uh, a copper axe head, uh, but he was also shot with a stone arrow head, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. You'd probably also expect like um, uh, polished stone tools. Those are kind of fairly common in Neolithic, the, the kind of beautifully made, hundreds of hours spent maces and, and hammer stones that have been sanded to a kind of fine polish with um with grit hmm. yeah not like i mean what what would you say that they were that they had um it looked kind of like uh 
sort of middle Paleolithic kind of crude yeah. spear points. I would say they had sort of Hollywood uh, spear points <laughs> that didn't really look like uh, yeah. there was much intention into their construction. <laughs> yes. Kind of uh, rough, pointy stones. Yeah. Yeah. Just what they thought looked cool. Here's uh, an archaeological thing. Um, they, uh, it's a, it's a nice tight loop. They, the time machine gets destroyed. The, uh, there's a standing stone uh, that this is all happening around. I don't know if we mentioned that, but there's a standing stone with some uh, stick figures carved into it, standing around a circle, which ends up being the actual time machine. So mm-hmm. it's like the Neolithic people have carved this event into the standing stone, but they. Uh, the time machine shows up right beside the standing stone and the two uh, uh, archaeologists or the archaeologist and the uh, uh, mad scientist get out and walk towards the people and they're killed where they're standing there a few meters away from the standing stone and then the reporter is killed in the time machine right beside the standing stone and then this uh, the time machine is disassembled and destroyed by these guys, right? Yeah. And this is exactly where all of them are found by the archaeologists later, right where they lay. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. that that wouldn't happen archaeologically. If you, if you have someone, anything, if you have an animal that dies in an open field, which is where this was, bones are going to get scattered all around the place. And they're probably not going to preserve uh, for thousands of years anyway. Mm-hmm. The only way it would happen is if these Neolithic people buried them in the exact spot where they killed them, which I think is unlikely. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I thought happened because the stone was visible, like was above the ground at the first scene when they were digging, right? Yeah. So, so if the yeah. stone, so the person was quite far under, so the stone would be far under too, right? Yeah. Because they There's would have no been change. at the same surface. There's no change in yeah. the height of the standing stone from when they see yeah, it. Yeah, so in that the means Neolithic. that the person was put underneath the ground, so yeah. it would have been intentional burial. It would have to have been. Yeah. But why would they bury them in the exact positions where they were killed? Because they were they were found. Uh, they they specifically noted where the bodies were found. Two of them were found a few meters away from the standing stone, and one was found closer to it. And that's exactly where they died. So, I think yeah. this is just uh, the filmmaker not really thinking it through how how this no. would work archaeologically. You definitely <laughs> wouldn't take the you wouldn't take the the time to bury to dig a six foot deep grave to bury three strangers like that right Mm. if that was in your living area you might move them away so that they're not rotting like in among where you are plus you know the wolves would get them or the bears that's not you don't have to worry about them staying around and making a mess the kind of natural house cleaners of the of the neolithic of ireland would have would have taken advantage of a free meal yeah but you'd still want to put it away from you because you wouldn't want the those animals to be coming near you for food yeah but yeah, you wouldn't put in the effort of digging six feet down, three graves, six feet down is either you're trying to hide the bodies or it's an act of love or, and respect, right? Mm. Uh, there's also some scientific jargon that's a little funny. And I think this might have been intentionally as a joke. But um, when the um, uh, the archaeologist from uh, the guys from the British Museum, right, he, when he shows up and the uh, archaeologist there is showing him around. He's showing them the the skeletons, and he says their cranial casings have been shattered. Yeah, and then they they do the uh, that trope where it's like in English, please, right? So mm-hmm. he says yeah. their cranial casings have been shattered. He says, "I'm sorry," and then he says, uh, "Their heads have been bashed in, probably by axes." Yeah, and uh, of course, 
cranial casings is kind of a <laughs> nonsense because the cranium is the casing. So it's not like you, yeah. it, you'd never call a skull a cranial casing. It's just a weird way to say it. No, I'd assume that it was a box that cranium was in. <laughs> right. Uh, but that, that might have been tongue in cheek. Like uh, they might have been making up fake nonsense science words mm. for the for the sake of the joke, you know? Yeah. I really liked how over the top they made the scientist guy. <laughs> yeah, there's some nice, nice uh, kind of writing with the mm. with the scientists. So, like when they're asked when he turns up with the the chrono perambulator, and the guy asks him if it works, and he says, "Of course it works." While he's sc- scratching his face with his with his hook hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get that at nice. first. I was, just, I just like that's a joke. I just got now. Yeah, I didn't get the whole he blew up his hand thing. Yeah. Uh, and there's a nice, there's nice interaction between the the farmer whose field the standing stone is in, where they're doing all this archaeology, and they basically kind of dug up everything around this the standing stone. And just as they're about to go back in time in in the machine, <laughs> he, he kind of rocks up um, drunk and goes, "You ruined this field, you English bastard!" Which is uh, <laughs> which is a fairly you know that's that's a, a reasonable complaint, I think. Um, mm-hmm. For for an Irish farmer's field in uh, 1919. Yeah, I think that's probably still. Uh, oh, it's, it's something uh, that would be on farmers' minds. Yeah. yeah. During my undergrad, I had a an assignment where I had to find some some primary archaeological source and write a report on it. And most people were like writing about stylistic changes in gravestones or something. Uh, but I got connected to this farmer that thought he might have a a burial mound or something on his property, hmm. uh, which is a kind of thing that we have in this area, not very commonly and not very well known. But um, he let me go take a look at it without, um, you know, on the, well, of course I couldn't dig because I was an undergrad student. I didn't have a permit or anything, but on the condition that I'm writing an undergrad report and nothing beyond that, because he didn't want anybody to get the idea that there was something archaeological. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though it was just in the bush, it wasn't even in a field or anything. But he he didn't mm. want to he didn't want to risk the uh, particularly in Canada the chance that they might find human uh, burials on his land because then it becomes a whole big issue. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so even today, farmers are worried about that kind of thing. Yeah, it's interesting, mm. and certainly that that's historically that's been an issue in um, in Scotland as well. With and there's still quite a few quite you know even recently famous um, archaeological sites that are still on private land mm. and yeah it can can be a bit messy in terms of uh, like visitation rights and things like that but yeah mm. have we exhausted the chronoperambulator <laughs> <laughs> no i got a few things that we can uh talk about we got some tangents we can go on here okay. one of the things uh that we can talk about are uparts do you know what uparts are i do mm-hmm. out of place artifacts yeah so that's basically mm. what this uh what this film is about you found Mm. an artifact that shouldn't be in the in the place where you where you have it and you have to make interpretations about that usually you hear about uparts in the context of conspiracy theorists and ancient aliens and stuff like that creationists love an upart Mm. do you know any uh examples of uh, uparts real or otherwise debunked yeah yeah um so i mean the one we mentioned i think last time about the um the carson city jail footprints so like um giant sloth footprints there's a famous one i can't remember the exact name but it's essentially a a metallic hammer um in what's claimed to be a kind of lump of coal which obviously would be massively out out of 
place. Um, other ones I've heard of are in the the Cabway Cranium, so the uh, held in the Natural History Museum in London uh, from uh, I think Zambia. Uh, it's from Tomo something or other, one of the early homos, and it's got an abscess in the, in the sort of side of the skull, which is per- almost perfectly circular, and it's been claimed by various uh, people that it's a bullet hole, which is interesting. Mm. Um, what other ones have you got? Would Piltdown Man be one? Yeah, Piltdown Man could count as one. There's a sort of different classes of them. So mm. that hammer you're talking about is called the London Hammer mm-hmm. from London, Texas. Uh, that's the one that my brain goes to first because yeah. it's really cool to look at. It's a, a metal hammerhead with a wooden handle that is embedded in a rock. And the first time you see it, you're like, wow, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. It's a Cretaceous limestone that it's embedded in. Mm. But uh, they did a carbon dating on the wooden handle and it came back inconclusive less than 700 years, I think. Because like, what's the lower range of carbon dating where it's actually... Uh, uh, where it can actually be performed 200 i think i don't know so yeah like carbon dating has a range but if it's too young or too old you can't get a proper date out of it so uh mm-hmm. basically it's it's too young to date properly and the style of the metal head is exactly the same as like a uh, 19th century american hammers but the the limestone is apparently cretaceous limestone so the best explanation they have for it is that um the sort of uh, calcification has occurred over top of the hammer, like it yeah. was put in a well or something where there was like flowing water and it deposited calcium over, like cal- calcite, cal- whatever, over top of it. Mm. Absolutely. And this is, I think this is a really interesting thing to sort of uh, ruminate on because, you know, when you sort of see it, it's there. It's like a real thing. You can, you can see pictures of it, photos of it, and you, your first, your mind goes, what? How on earth could that be possible? Mm. But then you kind of do a bit more digging. You, you kind of, if you have to read a geology textbook, and, and you realize, well, you know, rocks to the layperson are totally static. Once they're formed, that's it. But that's not the reality. Mm-hmm. Rocks are, mm-hmm. you know, they're not permanent. They're they're temporary. Like uh, things like limestone. You know, the reason why you get stalactites and stalagmites and all these kind of things is because it's it's fairly easy to kind of turn limestones into into liquid solutions and then precipitate them out again and you have mm. like cases of famous uh, petrifying wells or petrifying streams where people would just like chuck stuff and then come back a couple of weeks later and it'd be covered in a layer of uh, of limestone uh, because the the concentration in the in the water the stream or whatever is so high that uh, when it comes into contact with some kind of nucleating surface like something that it can adhere to then it just sort of comes out of solution onto the onto the object and so it's it's a really I think it gives us a bit of an insight into how how brains work, how how kind of we uh, reconcile new information, or how we try not to reconcile uh, new information or new anomalies that we kind of come across. Another sort of different example uh, of a new part, which we we've mentioned before, is the uh, Anikythera mechanism from uh, Greece. It's uh, yeah, I was thinking this- that. Yeah, it's this mm. complex geared machine that they found in a, on a shipwreck in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's sometimes you can consider it an upart because it, there's nothing else like it that we've ever found. And so when they found it, they just didn't really know what to think about it because it didn't mm-hmm. match the kind of technology they thought that they had in ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. 
But now we understand it is a real ancient Greek artifact, and it just tells us that what we understood about ancient Greece at the time was wrong, and so it seemed out of place mm-hmm. because we didn't have the full picture. But then after studying it, we realized that we know something different, uh, or the past was different than we, we thought we knew it. Yeah. So like, uh, uparts can be all different kinds of things. They can be real ancient artifacts that you know just tell us something we didn't know about the past, or they can be fakes or misunderstandings about things that aren't actually old but we think they are they can be a lot of different things Mm. Mm. or in the case of the cobway skull bullet hole uh just a wild imagination i guess yeah (laughs) we should say the cobway skull is uh probably a half a million years old which or three hundred thousand years old or something like that which is why it's ridiculous to think that there could be a bullet hole in it yeah (laughs) but you know these are the kind of things that as a, a kind of scientist, I've come across when reading kind of creationist literature, and and it, it sort of it tells you about the the kind of way that that non scientific worldviews um, view kind of evidence that the it's it's just it tends to usually just be presented uh, mm. and say look here's the London Hammer, uh, a metal object in carboniferous coal. Therefore, uh, everything we know about the history of Earth, life on Earth is wrong. Therefore, you should be, read your Old <laughs> Testament. That's where it is. And you know, there's there's multiple kind of logical fallacies from there. First of all, is that like we say, that you know, it's a real object, but is what they're saying right? Is it actually in a lump of coal, or is it in a in a lump of limestone? That's something you need to investigate. So often, people will just read something and take it at face value if it chimes with their their own worldview. Second thing yeah. is, you know, do we have an explanation? Science as we all kind of recognize from working in, in uh, academia, it's all about changing our ideas when we're confronted with new evidence. I mean, that, that's what it is. That's what we have to do. When, when you kind of hear stories about, you know, people saying, oh, but they've got giants hidden in the Smithsonian, or, oh, but they say that bumblebees can't fly according to the laws of science, then that, that you just sort of think, yeah, whatever, that's bullshit. You know, nothing science <laughs> loves more than, than something unexplained or unknown. That's the kind of stuff that we thrive on. Mm-hmm. You know, we would love there to be kind of giant skeletons. I mean, what would that tell us? But, yeah. um, or, you know, we would, we would love for, um, for all these kind of weird, weird things to be, to be real. Um, but unfortunately when we kind of use the scientific approach, which is to investigate the claims, to look at explanations for them, then what usually happens is we, we sort of change our understanding that that's how it should be. Yeah. Doesn't Tim Minchin say that, um, oh God, I just had it. This is the problem with doing this podcast so late is my brain just <laughs> is dead. Um, Was it the science so doesn't like, know all the like, answers? No, it's like like Scooby-Doo where everything that you think is magic ends up to just not yeah. be magic yeah, yeah. when you look closer at it. And what, and what really annoys me about when, when um, creationists or um, you know whatever kind of theological set is uses these kind of arguments is that, well, let's say that, for instance, that we do have a metal hammer from the Carboniferous, like with the London Hammer, that has absolutely nothing to say about the validity or not of your religious worldview. Like, there's no way mm. you can go from metal objects in the Carboniferous to, for example, um, Jesus being the Son of God who lived in the Middle mm. East 2,000 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. So it, they're, kind of, they're kind of trying to use kind of brain hacks to kind of just shut down your critical thinking and take their mm-hmm. authority um, as read. That just really annoys mm-hmm. 
Well, on that note, we can also talk about ancient aliens a little bit, because I don't know if we mentioned it, but the reason this mad scientist wants to go back uh, to the origin of the these artifacts is because he thinks that uh, aliens uh, are responsible for leaving these artifacts. He thinks that aliens visited these Neolithic peoples, and that's what evidence we're looking at here. And so the movie is, uh, the film is set in 1919, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. We tend to think of ancient aliens as a modern phenomenon since the show Ancient Aliens started in like 2011 and it's based on Von Daniken's book from uh, 1960, 1969, 1967, something like that. But uh, there was a lot of science fiction about ancient aliens around the turn of the century. And if uh, Wikipedia is correct, the first science fiction author to credit aliens with building the pyramids and the sphinx was an author named garrett p service uh who wrote a book called edison's conquest of mars which was an unofficial sequel to an unofficial adaptation of hg wells war of the worlds apparently uh i i don't know if my details on this are correct but it seems like maybe there was a a sort of serialized American version of uh, uh, War of the Worlds. And so anyway, Edison's Conquest of Mars is a sequel where Thomas Edison, who was a common hero in these uh, turn-of-the-century um, science fiction stories, they call them Edison-aids or something like that, I think. <laughs> okay. Basically, Thomas Edison creates uh, some sort of death ray and also spaceships and spacesuits, and put they put together a team of scientists and they fly to Mars to fight the Martians and uh, this is, this is uh, basically avenge like Earth. The 19th century equivalent of the Elon Musk fanboys that you get now, who are like, isn't it? <laughs> it's essentially the same kind of thing. Like they've, they've kind of glommed onto this uh, supposedly maverick genius inventor, although you know with yeah. Edison and definitely with Musk, that's very much debatable. You know, yes, they were fantastic capitalists, but did they actually invent all as much, all that much, rather than just take credit for it? Yeah. yeah. So, and then you get all the fanboys say, "Yeah, well, let's write a story about him going to Mars." <laughs> you have just put the terrifying idea into my head that um, Elon Musk fan fiction must oh, exist. God. Oh God! Oh, and it now- must exist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I'll do my best to find some Elon no, Musk please, fan fiction. Please and don't do that for a future episode. Please don't. That the cringe would kill us. <laughs> anyway, yeah. in this story, uh, Edison's conquest of Mars. Basically, they they have some space battles against Martians. They finally get to Mars and they win because Thomas Edison is smarter than Martians who are already advanced enough to fly to Earth. Uh, mm-hmm. But apparently, there's a race of giants that lives on Mars, and they traveled to Earth nine thousand years ago and abducted some humans who were still living as slaves on mars who they rescued but also they were responsible for building the pyramids and the sphinx and the sphinx is built in the image of the aliens and uh it seems like this might be the first science fiction story to uh to draw this connection between aliens and the pyramids but it was science fiction nobody believed this was true at the time Mm. Everything else in the story is so crazy, like such an imagination, right? And like, go wild with fiction. That's fantastic. And then somehow it's turned into this weird movement where people think like that it's true. And mm-hmm. imagine what the author thinks, you know, well, <laughs> he, like he'd be like, 100 years from now, they're going to be doing all this amazing stuff. And you're like, 100 years from now, they're going to think what you wrote is real. <laughs> yeah. Uh- 
it even happened in their lifetimes because uh, stories like this uh, from the 1800s inspired authors like um, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, who mm-hmm. uh, we don't really think of him as like ancient aliens, but his work is all about ancient aliens. It's about these ancient monsters that were dormant that came from other planets and they used to rule over ancient Earth and they're associated with um, like um, even... Yeah, even the uh, the most famous story of his, uh, Call of the Cthulhu, uh, features archaeology, or yeah. maybe the character is an archaeologist or something like that. And, but and Upart, even, essentially, features yeah, like yeah. the little Cthulhu um, statuette. Mm-hmm. But even in his lifetime, as he was writing these stories, fans would write into him and ask him, how do you know all this? Is this real? And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? This is fiction. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm pretty sure that people still try and find, uh, you know, Miskatonic University and uh, ask various kind of New England universities if they can see their copy of the Necronomicon. I'm pretty sure that that still happens, for sure. Hmm. Yeah. I worked at a bookstore and people would come in and ask where the Da Vinci Code was. <laughs> and so I'd, I'd bring them to the, like the Dan Brown, like the B section of fiction. They're like, this should be in religion. And I'm like, no, it's fiction. And they're like, no, it's not. And I'm like... Dan Brown and I like showed him all the other novels that he's written that are obviously fiction. They'd get so like they just huff away. They're like, <laughs> oh, they geez. thought it was a, a nonfiction written in like a narrative, though. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> that's weird. Yeah, it was weird, and it ha- multiple times. Like I was like, this is not, and I hadn't read it or watched the movie or anything yet. I was like, this is what's going on with this book? It's so bad. Yeah, such a terrible book. Like, I don't think I've ever been in a in a charity bookshop that's not had at least several copies of a Dan Brown novel because yeah. people like read read them and then thought this is absolute horseshit and then just gave it to the nearest charity <laughs> shop. Yeah. One thing that I don't think we mentioned, but it's kind of carrying on from what Josh was saying about the the standing stone that's um kind of at the center of the story, which has these supposedly Neolithic carvings on it of the arrival of the the time machine. One thing that's not generally known, but I think is quite cool, is that most standing stones would have had essentially kind of Neolithic graffiti and stuff on it. And and some of them you can still see it, especially if they've been kind of recumbent for a long time. So I think there's a few stones um, at Stonehenge, definitely some of the Orcadian um, standing stones have like, you know, Iron Age graffiti of axe heads usually is what what they kind of like to, to carve onto these stones. So you can... You can see um, some real kind of ancient graffiti on these massive stones from from that time period. I think they've done like um, what was it called photogrammetry on on some of the the Stonehenge sarsens and and stones and found mm-hmm. the, like the very faint remains because of course you know over the past three thousand years of, of British weather that that tends to kind of knock them off the outside. But if you imagine mm-hmm. back in the day. They would have been, you know, covered with the the kind of Iron Age equivalent of uh, "I was here." Um, I was here. Hmm. Yeah. One of my favorite graffiti facts is uh, how the Romans used to like drawing penises on everything. Yeah. Who doesn't? I mean, that's not that's not just a Roman thing. <laughs> and in the Tower of London, they have you know people scratching stuff on the walls and writing stuff on the walls. There's there's some great ones in Orkney. So we went on a. Uh, a trip to Orkney involved with some postdoc work I did, you know, a decade plus now, uh, years ago. And Maze Howe is like a, a Neolithic chambered cairn, but it was 
broken into by Vikings in the kind of 12th, 13th century when they were in Orkney as well. And they left graffiti all over it, which is fantastic. So some of it is, you know, gives you an insight into kind of Viking life. So it's, you know, Harold Shag's uh, Hilda here. Uh, <laughs> but other ones are really funny. Like there's way up right at the top of the of the chambered cairn, there's there's uh, a graffiti that says something like, uh, Thorin wrote this up high. You know, just like a, a kind of <laughs> meta joke about, uh, about yeah. the graffiti. Um, yeah, I, I love ancient graffiti. It just... So interesting. You get kind of insights into you know everyday people's lives. I think Pompeii's got quite a lot as well, which is usually yeah, quite Pompeii's quite lot. graphic. Yeah, and it's just interesting because it also just shows that people are are still the same. Exactly. Right. Like yeah. the jokes are still yeah. the same. Yeah. Everyone just likes to draw a penis. That's that hasn't changed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I actually talk about graffiti a little bit in some of my uh, courses because you know if it was written in Pompeii or. Uh, you know, in uh, on a uh, medieval standing stones or something. Uh, when we discover that, we try and preserve it because it's a window into the past. But if it's written on, you know, the back of my building, then <laughs> you know they want to sandblast over it and they want to try and catch people who are doing it and punish them for it. So it's yeah. funny to think about how we yeah. see the past differently from how we see the present. Absolutely, yeah. it's like um, you know that Indiana Jones uh, scene where. He's going to get chucked into the Well of Souls, I think it is. And uh, um, Belox talks about this watch that he got from the flea market in Cairo for like a dollar. It's, it's totally useless, totally worthless. But if I throw it in and leave it for a thousand years, it'll become priceless. And uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same with graffiti. Yeah. At what point does litter become something interesting, right? Absolutely. At what point does uh, grave robbing become archaeology? <laughs> <laughs> would say if it's longer than 50 years for that. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the number for forensics, I think, right? If it's younger than 50 years, then it's of legal interest. But if it's older than 50 years, it's, uh, it's, it's archaeology. Okay. But yeah, I think if you so. have a cemetery that is still managed that's older than 50 years, you can't actually just dig up those graves that are that are dated to before 19... 19- 73 yeah. is that what we are talking That's about we, saying, no. <laughs> so if you do it yeah you can just go dig up any graves that were buried before 1973 and just oh, say geez. don't worry i'm an archaeologist <laughs> but then it would be more like treasure hunting i don't know does the body have to be fresh for it be grave robbing uh, no because i think there's there's also there's a market for uh human skeletons as well so but is that grave robbing or is that, that would be um, grave robbing i would imagine I'm sure, apart from the age uh, stipulation, probably also if it still has a headstone, then it's grave robbing. <laughs> mm. so. Do we know why this film was commissioned? Like, was it part of a series or was it a one-off? Or I really couldn't find anything about this film. There's no. not a lot to go on uh, IMDb. The director and writer is uh, Damien O'Donnell, who has done some... Uh, a small number of other things. There's a pretty big gap of about eight years during the 2000s where it doesn't seem like he did anything. Uh, I was hoping, Ross, maybe you were more familiar uh, being in the UK since maybe uh, this was played more locally, but I, I'm not familiar with anything else he did. I'd, I'd never heard of it before. And so, no, I'd, I did a little bit of, of digging. I couldn't find any anything uh, particularly of, of relevance. It's not something I ever heard about I mean that's not really how films are shown in uh, 
in the UK, even back in the 90s, back in uh, my youth, you would never really see a, a 10 minute film in the cinema. It would have to be something that was maybe for TV or for um, video or something. I don't know. For a film festival, maybe? Yeah, for a film yeah. festival, perhaps. In Canada, we have the National Film Board uh, and on CBC, at least when I was younger, I don't watch uh, actual TV these days, but um, whenever they had, you know, several minutes in between shows, they'd put some sort of independent short films on. Um, I remember the, uh, Kim, do you remember the Cat Came Back cartoon that used to always uh, end up on TV when they had like five minutes to fill with the Fred yeah. Penner song? Yeah, I haven't thought about that since probably since last time I saw it. Speaking of which, there's a, a very short, like, two-minute uh, vignette from the National Film Board of Canada about woolly mammoths that's on our list that I want to figure out how to do at some point, but I don't know how we'd ever do a two-minute video. <laughs> well, we're up, to, we're up to 50 minutes on this. Yeah. Who'd have thought? So, yeah. We might be kind of rambling at this point. We're yeah. talking about <laughs> National Film Board of Canada, but... <laughs> Uh, it looks like, um, I've just been doing some digging while you guys have been chatting. It looks like it was maybe commissioned by Channel 4, mm. one of the five um, terrestrial channels we have in the UK. So uh, it looks like it maybe got played on, on Channel 4 at some point in the past. And they're, they're kind of like a, an artsy, I don't know what the, the American-Canadian equivalent would be, but it's um, funded by uh, advertising, but kind of has a remit uh, to produce kind of quality output. So it's got a good reputation for um, quizzes and uh, comedy as well, Channel 4. Probably PBS would be the equivalent. For Possibly. Because it's not like the BBC channels, which are um, funded by um, a license fee. And it's mm. not like ITV and Channel Y, which are funded by advertising, but are dross. Mm. Well, what are our final thoughts on Chronoperambulator, then? It is worth the 11 minutes, I think. You will not regret it. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with Kim that uh, 11 minutes, it doesn't waste any time, I think. It's enjoyable, mm. it's funny, well acted, mm -hmm. and it's a nice little interesting piece of time travel fiction, I guess. Yeah. Maybe we should have put a spoiler warning at the top since uh, there's a twist to it, but nah, whatever. Everyone knows what yeah. that we're going to spoil the show. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I like this one. I love uh, a perfect time loop. Uh, I like that about it. Uh, it's short enough that it doesn't, uh, the twist doesn't really matter because yeah. you don't have to like wait it out being like, I already know what's going to happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's not, I can't think of many other films that do a closed time loop that's that's really as as kind of succinct as that i guess uh, have you guys seen looper that's kind of all about no. that's all about kind of closing time loops and stuff but it, it it's a bit messy and doesn't totally make sense i think i might have started that one and then got frustrated was that with uh, joseph gordon levitt that's the one yeah and bruce willis yeah i think i something about it i didn't like and i stopped after about 15 minutes yeah uh 12 monkeys i think does a, a closed time loop pretty well have you seen 12 Monkeys? I have not. Okay. No. Right. <laughs> Futurama has a perfect time loop in Roswell that ends well, except that yes. it has a paradox. Yeah. That's one of my favorite episodes. 
I just love the the bit when they uh, they find Zoidberg. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Brilliant. I haven't seen it. Oh, you got to check it out. Any other time loop films that, that anyone could think of? Primer, perhaps. I mean, that's one that that uh, boggles the mind. So I can't really tell if it's a perfect time loop or not because I never managed to uh, totally figure it out. Oh, um, the the movie I can never remember the name of, but it was adapted from a Robert Heinlein story called All You Zombies. Maybe mm. that's Primer. I don't. I can't I remember what know. it's called. What happens uh, in it? It's um some sort of time travel agent from the future comes back and talks to i don't know it's too complicated but you can find this story online i don't want to okay. spoil this one because okay. it's it's a pretty tight uh time loop uh, maybe medically doesn't quite make a lot of sense but uh everything closes up in the end and uh, i really liked reading it when i was uh younger mm. They adapted into a movie and they added some extra stuff to it, which I thought was going to make it not work. But somehow they they extended this time loop and added more loops to it, and it and it still worked. Uh, but I still think the short story is better than the uh, the movie. I'll see if I can remember the name of the movie. Predestination, but I'll is that it? That's the one. Predestination. Okay. Yeah, I've not not seen that one. Read the story though. Source code, I think, is also another time loop. A recent time loop film. Um, which I thought was not bad. Uh, Edge of Tomorrow, another time loop film. I think I'm getting the impression I've been watching a lot more films um, than you guys. <laughs> you, guys have, you guys have been watching a lot of time loop films, is yeah. what I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Maybe we'll start a side podcast where we just <laughs> uh, review time loop films. And it's just the same review over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> What you'd have to do is do like one episode, which leads to the other one, another movie, which leads to the other movie, and then it kills back around and it just continues. Like that, right? <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. If you've been enjoying Screens of the Stone Age, get in touch with us. Follow us on Twitter at SOTSA underscore podcast and on Facebook at SOTSA podcast, or send us an email to screensofthestoneage at gmail.com. Screens of the Stone Age is supported by the Paleoanthropological Society of Canada. Find out more at pasc-scpa.ca.